Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansero, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. In August, Numeroff & Associates released its fifth annual report examining the evolution of population health management in the United States. The report surveyed 485 physician group executives or vice presidents, as well as certain employees of healthcare systems, hospital and academic medical centers, including many from accountable care organizations. In this episode of Managed Carecast, we talked with Michael Abrams, a co-founder of Neumorphin Associates, about how healthcare is transitioning to population health or not, and what the barriers are in terms of a full embrace to thinking differently about the cost and quality of care. So welcome to Managed Carecast, Michael. Well, thanks, Allison. I appreciate your having me on. Do you just want to say a couple of words about yourself in way of an introduction and about what you do? Sure. So um, I'm a co-founder and managing partner of Numeroff and Associates. Uh, we are a strategic management consulting firm. We're based in St. Louis uh, and have uh, worked across the healthcare uh, industry for over 25 years. We do work with uh, healthcare delivery organizations as well as manufacturers, pharmaceutical medical device manufacturers, and insurers. And that gives us, I think, a 360-degree view of what's happening across healthcare and helps us to see more clearly, I think, what the trends are and, and how the various segments interact. We focus on strategy and strategy implementation, uh, and we've specialized really in the challenges of this industry being in transition and managing the changes that that demands of the various participants that are part of it. So as I understand it this month, uh, your company released a report, the State of Population Health, the fifth annual Numeroff survey report. Can you um, explain a little bit about why you do this report every year about population health? Sure. So we have been running uh, our population health survey uh, for five years now. And it is one of the few uh, serious research attempts to understand the penetration of the population health model across the country within healthcare delivery organizations. And so we have been asking largely the same questions for the past five years. And we've been trying to understand what uh, institutions are doing as well as what they're not doing and why they're not doing it. And what are some of the key findings of this year's report? Well, it's interesting, uh, the, this fifth year of our survey uh, shows us that the commitment to really modifying uh, the way that healthcare delivery organizations deliver care is still lacking. We gauge progress towards population health uh, largely by 
asking institutions the percentage of their revenue that comes through contracts where they are accountable for the total cost of care and the quality of care delivered. And over the five year period, the percentage of revenue on average that our respondents tell us come through those kinds of contracts really hasn't changed. The median percentage of revenue that comes from those kinds of arrangements is roughly 10% of total revenue. And over the five-year period, we've seen a lot of talk about population health, a lot of general agreement that it's a good idea, and yet we don't see much change in terms of the percentage of revenue coming through such arrangements, which says the commitment simply is not there. What do you think is getting in the way of the commitment? Well, I would say at this point, the top issue, the top concern of healthcare administrators and, and the reason that they give for not participating more in arrangements where they are in fact accountable for the cost and quality of care is the risk or the threat of financial, uh, negative financial consequences to their balance sheet if in fact they participate and they're not able to deliver on the commitments or the accountability that they have to, uh, to a, either a total cost of care target or to quality targets. Did anything about this year change any of their answers? Obviously, as you were putting this report out, the pandemic was starting to take hold. Now, we, we gathered data for our survey uh, between June and September of 2019. So this was pre-COVID. And, and pretty much not influenced by COVID. I'm, I'm looking forward to the results from our 2020 survey because we think that uh, the pandemic will perhaps change uh, the thinking of healthcare administrators about what they've always regarded as quote unquote, taking on risk, which is to say being accountable for cost and quality. Uh, what the pandemic has made very clear is that fee-for-service has its own risks, uh, very specifically when the procedures, the high-margin procedures on which many healthcare institutions rely to ensure that their balance sheets stay healthy, when those procedures get turned off as they did in the pandemic, there's a tremendous risk, and since the pandemic has, uh, has become a, a fact of life, uh, healthcare institutions that are predominantly fee-for-service have found themselves in financial freefall. So we certainly think that this experience should force healthcare administrators to think differently about what is risk and what's the risk of staying in a fee-for-service uh, paradigm that is outmoded and everybody agrees it's outmoded. 
Do you think there will be any recognition in next year's report about um, outcomes in terms of the health of a population looking at the pandemic and who fared worse if they were infected with SARS-CoV-2 in terms well, of how people that, respond? Yeah, it, it's become very apparent that um, differences in, in the general health of various segments of our population affect all of us. And in effect, um, when you look at the partic a particular market area, the health of the population in that market area is substantially impacted by the uh, vulnerabilities of any one segment within it. And so disadvantaged segments who have had problems in access to care and whose general health care status is, um, has been negatively impacted in that way uh, create a real vulnerability for the larger population. That is, I think, uh, one aspect, one attractive feature of population health, which is to say, taking a broader view of the entire population and the health of that population. What, if anything, did respondents say about the social determinants of health? Well, we have seen an increased level of attention to the social determinants of health. Uh, that is one thing that has changed over the five-year period. So this is one of the few areas in which we have seen changes. A larger percentage of respondents said that they are more involved in things like housing, in food insecurity, and in transportation, ensuring that patients can in fact get back and forth to receive care. Uh, over that five-year period, uh, these kinds of in this kind of involvement with basic social needs like housing, transportation, and food insecurity has grown uh, significantly. About half of the respondents said that their organizations provide assistance with these kinds of needs, and about 30% provide housing or community uh, development support, most often in partnership with other community organizations. Do you expect those trends to continue as we move forward? I think that the pandemic will almost certainly accelerate the trend towards more involvement in addressing the social determinants of health. Uh, we still have significant opportunity to grow in that space. As I said, half of the respondents are involved in, in um, food insecurity and transportation, and about 30% are involved in housing or community development support. So there is certainly room to improve on that score. Was there anything in the report that surprised you? I guess what I keep being surprised about is the lack of genuine commitment to the concept that the best care is the right intervention provided to each patient in the right place geographically and at the right time to, um, to be most cost effective and provide the best outcome. 
that at its heart is really what population health is all about. And despite all of the general agreement on the concept, real genuine commitment to that concept has been limited to a small segment of hospitals across the country who oftentimes have, you know, made the level of commitment where 60% or more of their revenue comes from agreements where they are accountable for cost and quality, but they're a minority. And that's why the median uh, percentage of uh, uh, commitment to this concept has remained at a very nominal 10% of revenue. I think in your report, it also said there was a difference in these answers depending on the size of the healthcare organization, large versus small. Does that play into the commitment or does that really just relate to the financial risk? Uh, you know, I think it relates in, in part to the financial risk. Smaller institutions have smaller markets. If they, uh, they, they feel that they are more vulnerable to outlier patients who would raise the total cost of care for the population they've committed to manage and uh, their balance sheets being smaller, they feel more vulnerable. So I think there is that. I think too that uh, smaller institutions, they obviously have fewer resources to work with uh, and and so they're not able to take on as much as larger institutions. And certainly with the consolidation that we've seen over the at least the five last five or ten years, it's the larger institutions that have the lion's share of resource and um, capacity to work with. So is there anything you would recommend to increase commitment? when it comes to risk and that sort of thing, to get more organizations on board? Well, the principal issue that is raised by the survey has been in the past several administrations and continues to be so, is the lack of institutional engagement with physicians to drive cost and quality. And so we asked uh, a number of questions having to do with the physician's role. You know, it's been said that the most expensive technology in the hospital is the physician's pen. And I think there's general agreement that uh, the decisions, the clinical decisions that physicians make in the course of care drive roughly 80% of the cost of healthcare. So it's surprising that now that hospitals employ over half of the physicians in the country that there are they're lacking processes to to manage and and influence the clinical decisions that physicians make so we looked at things like the use of order entry systems to monitor uh, basically the decisions that clinicians are making. We looked at things like the establishment of care paths, agreed upon sequences of decisions that are appropriate for a given clinical condition, 
that you would expect in on average clinicians would be making and and the use of order entry systems to identify outliers the use of those kinds of things are still very limited and when i say then that healthcare institutions don't engage with physicians to influence the kinds of clinical decisions that they're making that's what's missing and so the bottom line is that if that is what controls 80% of healthcare costs how can institutions feel confident that they could manage against a total cost of care target when they have no mechanisms for influencing the decisions that drive those costs and until they put those processes in place they will always be vulnerable uh, every uh, our, our respondents 98 percent of our respondents agree that health that population health will be critical to their success in the future but their confidence in their ability to to manage particularly on the cost side at the individual physician level remains modest and this is why i think at some level they understand that if those clinical decisions control cost and they have no process for influencing those decisions, then they can't feel very confident that they could manage against targets. I don't know if this is outside of the scope of your report, but wasn't vertical integration of hospitals and health systems and physician practices supposed to solve some of the issues you just spoke about? You're smiling. <laughs> well, you know, I think that, um, when it came time to influence public opinion, the idea that somehow costs would be lowered um, with healthcare consolidation, the acquisition not only of neighboring institutions, but of physician practices, uh, that was uh, offered up as a rationale for why it was a good thing. The truth is that research has shown that when um, market areas are dominated by a particular institution that has grown by acquisition to include physicians and, and other hospitals in the market area, that that drives costs up, which generally is the way things work in, in economics and, and all other spheres of business. So that should surprise no one. Um, the differential reimbursement, um, site-specific reimbursement that enables a hospital to charge more for the same office visit after they've acquired that practice than the physician was charging for that office visit prior to the acquisition has in fact funded uh, in part the acquisition of physician practices that premium if you will that hospitals have been able to charge just because the practice is now a part of the hospital system uh, has basically financed the outlay to acquire the practice. Now, the current administration has taken action to eliminate site-specific reimbursement. And if that, re, you know, if that decision um, 
remains to, to eliminate uh, that kind of reimbursement, that will take away one of the incentives for employing physicians uh, and will basically force healthcare delivery organizations to forego that particular premium. Is there anything else about this population health survey for this year that I forgot to ask? Well, we have seen some small uh, but significant changes in some processes that have a direct bearing on patients. And so we've seen increases in the use of inpatient care navigators. Uh, we've seen uh, increases in the referral of patients to community organizations like food pantries or prescription assistance programs and other safety net programs. And we've seen wider use of patient follow-ups to ensure that patients understand discharge recommendations. Those things have increased uh, over the five years that we have been looking at them, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. None of these processes, the use of care inpatient care navigators, the use of uh, patient follow-ups to, dis to discuss discharge recommendations, none of those are routinely used uh, by even three quarters of respondents. And these are so basic, you would expect there wouldn't be uh, very many uh, institutions that weren't doing that on a routine basis. But some of those things could still be improved upon, and we have seen improvements uh, up to date. So, you know, that represents some of the improvement that we've seen, but this is at the level of infrastructure. And once again, I think the core issue is physicians. Now that they're all employed, um, there have to be processes in place to influence the kinds of clinical decision-making that, that drives cost. And until uh, healthcare institutions really get over their reluctance to uh, build those kinds of interfaces, then the possibility that they can manage both the cost and quality of the service they're delivering, I think, will remain out of their grasp. Well, thank you very much for joining us. This was a really interesting discussion. You're welcome, Allison. Thank you. Take care. For more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.